Harvey, want anything special for your birthday? Just a decent cup of coffee. You're kidding. I'm serious. Honey, your coffee's undrinkable. It's pretty harsh. Well, so's your coffee. Opening episode 409 of Monster Kid Radio with the song The Unnamed. It's from the band Zombie Zen Agogo from their self-titled album that came out toward the end of last year. You can find them at zombiezenagogo.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes after you're done listening to this episode of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'm your writer, host, producer, and guide to, well, everything that we're doing this week. What is happening this week? We've got a lot going on. I've packed a lot into this episode, and I think you're going to dig it. First, you're going to hear from somebody that I've been wanting to get on the show proper for quite some time. He's made a few small appearances every time I go to the HP Lovecraft Film Festival here in Portland, but this time I actually sat down via Skype with composer Reber Clark. Reber is an incredible musician. I love his music. I've got a lot of it on my iPod and my computer and all over the place here. And he's also a collaborator with me, with Joshua Kennedy, because he is providing the score for the upcoming film, House of the Gorgon, the retro-style hammer love letter film that Josh Kennedy will be premiering at Monster Bash this year. So Reber and I are going to talk a little bit about that. We're also going to talk a little bit about, well, some of our favorite horror film scores. It's a fun chat. And this is really cool. He's given us permission to play a track from the soundtrack album from House of the Gorgon here on the show. So sneak preview. Check it out. Oh, man, it's so good. It's so good. That's not the only thing happening this time around, though. We have a bit of a movie discussion. Last year, speaking of Lovecraft, right after the Lovecraft Film Festival, the following weekend or so, the Hollywood Theater showed the classic film, Night of the Demon. Guess who had never seen it before? Yeah, yeah, that would be me. So I had to go see it with my friends Chris McMillan and Dominique Lamsey's. You know them. They're regulars here on the show. They're great people to go to movies with. And after the film, we headed down to Starbucks and pulled out the recorder and chatted for about 20 minutes about Night of the Demon. So you're going to hear that as well. And of course, because we're talking about Night of the Demon, Kenny's going to talk about how Night of the Demon was represented in Famous Monsters of Filmland in his segment. And that's not the only segment we have. We also are going to hear from Dr. Tong again this week. That's right. Mark Peterson will be here with the Dr. Tongue's world of monster collectibles. And hey, I'm gonna babble on for about 10 minutes about the 17th annual Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. We've got so much going on this week. I'm eager to get to all of it. I can't wait for you to hear it. So uh, let's do it right after this. If you are a murderer, a blackmailer or a thief, with a face as ugly as sin, and a mind as distorted as the devil's, then this man, he might help you. You could be beautiful, if you would trust me. Think twice before you join his circus of horrors. He'll change your face beyond recognition, but your soul, he'll enslave for all time. Remember, he alone will know the secrets of your evil past, and never will he let you escape alive. 
Anton Diffing as Dr. Schuller, who rose to glory in a trail of blood. Erika Remberg as one of the girls whose face and fate he changed, but not her mind. <laughs> you can't frighten me. These others have been stupid, just plain stupid. What others? The late unlamented ones who have died so suddenly and so strangely. This is the little girl with the maimed face who was forever beholden to him. I am beautiful. Who grew from innocent childhood into trusting adolescence. I would do nothing to hurt you. I owe you so much. I love you so much. She was his one weakness. <laughs> this maniac who first healed and then killed. Rosita. What just happened was an accident. Every second is filled with unexpected danger and terror. As a doctor, a specialist in horror, uses his sinister skill to make a circus of criminals perform at his bidding. Hello, this is Rod Barnett, the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast about eclectic film from across the decade. On The Bloody Pit, we've covered Godzilla movies, Doctor Who movies starring Peter Cushing, The Outer Limits, Fu Manchu, Doc Savage, old radio shows, my favorite movies of all time, a Lucio Fulci film or two, 1970s science fiction movies, and a long series on the films of Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti. So if you're curious to learn a little bit about some of the stranger areas of cult film and television, join me and my rotating group of co-hosts on The Bloody Pit. You might even learn something about Coffin Joe. And that's scary, people. Very scary. Buried alive in each man is a strange, depraved creature that turns the soul into a battleground of sin and violence, turning life into an inferno. In Dr. Henry Jeffers, this knowledge, perhaps it was his quiet ways, his unloving wife, his simple, homely face that drove him to unleash this inner presence. This was Jekyll's inferno. Dr. Jekyll gave life to the unspeakable evil of Mr. Hyde. Rich, handsome, decadent Mr. Hyde erupted to spew adultery, viciousness, murder in the greatest macabre spectacle of all time. American International Pictures presents a fascinating new Dr. Jekyll, a terrifying new Mr. Hyde. Robert Louis Stevenson's study in terrifying evil. Jekyll's Inferno. In color and megascope. I met Reber at a Lovecraft film festival a few years back now, and I think I had him on the show then when I brought my recorder around and shoved it in people's faces, but I haven't had him on the show since. I've always wanted to because I love what he does. He's become a dear friend, and now we're co-workers, kind of, sort of, on a, a movie project. 
Reaper Clark, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great, and we are co-workers on that project. Yeah, you did a great job, man. That project being House of the Gorgon, and man, I am so jealous that you went to London for the sneak preview. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the producer didn't pay my way, so I had to pay my own way, but it was a blast. <laughs> we'll have to talk to Joshua about that. Yeah, I have to talk to the producer. <laughs> <you know. laughs> well, we'll see him at Monster Bash, and you're going to be at Monster Bash this year. Yes, and my wife will both be there. It should be fun. And yeah, I was kind of shy around Carolyn Monroe first meeting her because she's iconic to me. So I'm going to make up for that and be a little more open with her uh, <laughs> in Pennsylvania. I guess she's so iconic in my background, you know, with the Sinbad picture, especially, oh, yeah. you know, I just was uh, blown away. Yeah, she's amazing. And the film's great. The music is fantastic. And I, I tell people this, that while I was doing the sound effects and all the editing that I was doing, I had to watch the movie at least 30 times. Yeah, I know how that goes. <laughs> I never got bored, and I'm sure part of it's because of Josh's filmmaking capabilities, but the music just carries you along as well. And it's listeners, man, I I cannot wait for people to not just see the movie, but hear the movie. Yeah, I had a great time doing it. And like you said, Josh's cutting and his angles and stuff really kept me interested. I don't know how many cues there are in the thing, but yeah, (laughs) I I know the movie inside and out. You know, I'm going to be releasing the soundtrack on CD and for download. And if you get a CD, you automatically get the downloads too on Thursday of this week. So this episode will be going out on Thursday of this week. So we are timing this just right for people to head over to your Bandcamp page. Yes, reberclark.bandcamp.com. You can also get there through reberclark.com. I, I love Bandcamp. Uh, I love finding the surf bands that I play here on the show, but I've also listened to a ton of your music there. Your Dark Adventure Radio Theater music is there as well. Just wonderful stuff. And Listeners, Reaper's given us permission to play a track from the soundtrack of House of the Gorgon on the show. So we'll play that here in a little bit. Okay. Just to give people a taste. But then head over there and pick up the album. Buy the download, buy the CD, buy both. Well, I guess if you buy the CD, you get the download. Right. Or you can just buy the download, which is less expensive. You do get a PDF of the... uh... No, wait. I'm thinking of my other release that just came out a couple days ago. Never mind. You don't get anything. (laughs) Well, what was that other release? The other release was Haunter of the Dark, the music for the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society's Dark Adventure radio theater production of The Haunter of the Dark. And I thought it was good enough to put on an actual hard copy, make CDs of it. So I released that on CD as well as House of the Gorgon. Everything else on Bandcamp is download. I loved the Haunter of the Dark music. I think I told you that as soon as I heard the CD. I'm like, oh, you got to put this out. I got to have the music. So I'm so glad that that's available too. And you did get a package for me, right? Oh, oh yeah. Okay, good. Oh, yeah. I was going to say something off mic, but yes, you did. I did. Okay, okay. <laughs> but listeners, if you want to be one of the cool kids and get a package from Reaper, all you got to do is go buy the CD. Absolutely. So with House of the Gorgon, it's a Hammer tribute film. And a lot of what he did, what Kennedy did was intentionally make it feel like maybe a postmodern hammer gothic film and the music seems to really fit into that mold as well how did you approach a score like this versus what you do for the lovecraft guys well one of my big composer influences was bernard herman so i was approaching it like that and then i found out there's another bernard james bernard who was a hammer composer he did the music for uh, horror of dracula and quite a few other ones he was the one that came up with Dracula, you know, dun, 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 dun. I thought, wow, that's really interesting. And he uses dissonance a lot, you know, like minor seconds and minor ninths and things, and really dissonant stuff. So I thought, how is he doing this? And 
this author named David Huckvale wrote a book called James Bernard, Composer to Count Dracula. Okay. And there's some analysis of the music in there. And what he did was really interesting. And so I used some of those techniques. So it's kind of a combination between James Bernard and Bernard Herman, all the Bernards. <laughs> <laughs> I do detect a touch of James Bernard magic in what you're doing. You're never quite aping James Bernard. And I think that's the point. I mean, it's its own thing. But man, it could be played right next to something like Dracula or the Curse of Frankenstein. He would take uh, the rhythm of words like Dracula and make that the rhythm of the theme he was writing. Da, da, da. So I took House of the Gorgon. Da, 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 da. And the main theme is House of the Gorgon. <laughs> of course, it's not sung, but it's da, 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 da. That's the main theme. The Gorgon. And that's the composer's secret weapon is his themes. I was going to play coy and like I didn't know and ask if you did do that intentionally for the House of the Gorgon. But I know that as soon as you sent a demo track to Josh, he listened to it and he went crazy. I just heard it and it sounds like House of the Gorgon. You're singing House of the Gorgon. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Great. Let's keep that going. <laughs> so I'm going to out him as fanboying a little bit over the music he sent him at first. No, that's <laughs> In London. Was that the first time you actually met him? Yes, that was fun. Actually, I was walking around... Uh, the theater the day before and just happened to look in and I was, they had their post the posters up and I said I did the music in this movie can I wander around and look and Georgina Dugdale works at the bar there she's the ingenue she's the lead in the movie so that was it was fantastic to meet her ahead of time just randomly and then yeah on the premiere night is when I met Josh and his mom and uh, she's fantastic Anna She's the one who got him into horror when he was like three years old or something. Or something. So this is now. all her fault. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess. Man, I'm so jealous. But then I didn't have a tuxedo, so probably a good thing I didn't go. Because I saw pictures of you and Josh in your tuxedos, hobnobbing it up with everybody in the film. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually learned, finally learned to tie a bow tie. <laughs> I had used those clip-on things and the strap-on things for so many years, and I thought, I thought, going to a movie premiere in London, I better learn how to tie a real bow tie. So I finally did. You got to class it up a little bit, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I understand it was sold out. They decided to hold it over a little it bit longer. It was sold out. Yes, incredibly. And uh, put on a second showing, I think, uh, early February. And the uh, Q&A afterwards went into the wee hours. And they, they said they ne that never happens. They have to shut the theater down at a certain time. But they extended the time and everybody stayed great questions great comments it was really a great evening it sounds amazing and again listeners i can't wait for you to see the film it's gonna be a blast if you can get the monster bash man that's where you gotta be to see it and you get to meet reber in person and and huh? if you haven't already done it you get to meet josh so absolutely josh is the guy in the big hat yeah. <laughs> josh is hard to miss even if he's not wearing the hat he's hard to miss because he's just yeah, a, you can hear him uh, yes he's yeah. got the voice <laughs> right. it projects like my mother used to say you have that voice too where uh, you're going to get caught because you can't hide your voice you know <laughs> the teacher is going to hear you so anyway yeah <laughs> He's got one of those voices. Fantastic. Well, I love the score. Like I said, I know I'm laying it on pretty thick, but... Come to my website and buy a CD. Like I said, we'll play a track from it here in a little bit. I don't 
okay, I was going to say I don't talk about movie music very much here on the show, but that's a lie. I bring it up almost every episode because I love film scores, but I'm not a musician. I can't read music. Uh, I, I don't know all the terms. You know, I know what dissonance was. I mean, you mentioned dissonance. I know that, but right. <laughs> I, I don't know this stuff the way like a composer or a musician would. So I thought it'd be really cool to have a monster kid who's also a composer on the show to talk a little bit about classic monster movie music. Sure. We haven't done a top three episode in a long time. Right. I'd like to do a top three favorite classic monster movie scores with you. Well, okay. I've got three, but I've got a list here of about 40 with notes and arrows. and all Yeah. Kinds of I'm going to say Alien is number one. Alien is your number one, huh? Omen is number two. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, the original Hellraiser, only the first one. Hellraiser score is fantastic. You know, that for a long time was like a holy grail for me because it had a very limited CD release originally. Yeah, you couldn't find it. I finally snagged one a year or two ago. You know, and it's interesting you bring up those three because obviously they're of a later era than, say, like some of the Hammer stuff and that sort of thing. But they all still feel gothic. They all still have that vibe that could play very well against a Peter Cushing film or a Christopher Lee movie or something along yeah. those lines. Even Hellraiser. Christopher Young does amazing work. Yes, he did. It was a fantastic score. Uh, the Uninvited was pretty good, too, if I remember right. That's one of his other ones. And there's just so much other stuff. Like in the 50s, Bronislaw Caper was doing some great stuff with uh, one of the movies that I remember of his is Them. Oh, yeah. The big ant movie. Yes. Really great stuff. And then Irving Gertz and Salter and Stein and and Henry Mancini, and and they were all working in the same studio, uncredited, doing The Creature from the Black Lagoon and Incredible Shrinking Man and stuff like that. And that's really some great stuff to listen to. Uh, The Creature, obviously, is my favorite film. So, of course, I'm going to mention that as one of my favorite scores. But The Creature music, it's iconic. That stinger got used so much by Universal that da, 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 over sure. and over and over again. And part of it's to save money, I'm sure. They had it in the library. Let's use it. But it was also so effective. Right. <laughs> it just puts you on edge yeah. and ready to go. Great stuff. And when I was growing up, I'm reading Famous Monsters, and I, I ordered an 8 millimeter print of uh, Castle Films, I think, put about uh, a creature from the Black Lagoon. So it's not, obviously not the whole movie, but what is this, a 7-inch reel? And uh, had most of the highlights in it, had the creation of the planet in the beginning and, and the storyline. Mm-hmm. But it was silent. Later on, probably in high school, I started adding my own stuff to it. Just playing stuff live. And oh, wow. That was fun. <laughs> uh, we lost, all, lost it in a flood uh, just oh. a few years ago. Yeah. One of my favorite movies. Could watch it over and over. It's constantly playing in my mind somewhere all the time anyway. <laughs> Right, right. It's such a great film. Yeah, right? And you see the hand coming up and grabbing the dirt and going back into the... Yeah. 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 That's the stuff. And even, you know, the underwater ballet scene, you know, where he's swimming with with Kay. That music, even though it's not that over-the-top in-your-face, some of that's just gorgeous as well. And and where he's brushing her foot, but not really touching it, and she's looking down like, what is that? Is it a fish? You know? Yes. Yeah, Creature would definitely be on my list. I have also become a huge fan of what the Japanese monster movie music sounds like. The Akira Afuka-based stuff, Godzilla, and especially Rodan. I know the movies, sort of. I'm, I'm not up on all of that stuff. A lot of it, to be fair, does have a lot of the same similar riffs and marches in them. 
but he still manages to make each one unique, especially the beginning of the kaiju cycle with Rodan, with Godzilla, and that sort of thing. Uh, another score that I love, though, and unfortunately I haven't been able to find this anywhere as a digital release or a CD release or anything like that, and, and I wish it was available. And that's the score from the original House of Wax. Oh, wow. That's weird that it's not out there. Yeah. Who, who did that? Well, the trailer has music by Max Steiner. And that has been released on another album of Max Steiner music. But the score proper was got, uh, by a guy by the name of David Buttle. Oh, I've seen that name. Yeah, sure. I just can't find it anywhere. I have looked. I have gone to every possible place I can find on the internet. We lose so many things that way, you know. It's unfortunate because a lot of the movies that I love so much are these older films. And, you know, we're lucky that we even have the films, but you can't get the soundtracks for a lot of them. Right. Fantastic Voyage was one that I got recently that uh, had not been able to find for years. Leonard Rosenman. And that's that's a good soundtrack. The Max Steiner song, or I guess track from the House of Wax trailer, is gorgeous. But there's just something about the movie itself. And maybe I'm biased because I just saw it on the big screen the other day. Ah. <laughs> so I sat there and had the music blasted at me <laughs> for a good right. hour and a half. So, you know, it's just wonderful stuff. Yeah, those guys really knew what they were doing. They, they really did. They, you know, now a lot of soundtracks, they don't have themes. They don't have melodies. It's kind of a weenie word, melody, so everybody wants to, you know, they don't think it's strong, you know, and we're hammering things. Now it's all sound effects, kind of. So it was nice, like in Shape of Water. There's a theme. Yeah. In uh, Pan's Labyrinth, there's, you know, Javier Navarrete, there's a theme. Mm -hmm. The machinist, Roque Banos, I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name, but he has a very Herman-esque score that's melody based that's just great just effective as heck yeah i think it's easy to kind of find this kind of homogenized sound in so many of the films coming out now well and it's not a lot of times it's non-stop too yeah there's no silence and and silence is so important well let's see that's the Bronislaw caper quote i was going to use the loudest sound in a motion picture is silence yeah you know how to use silence that bernard herman was a big mm -hmm. proponent of that this is why we get along, man. I, I agree with you. I guess, you know, producers want to put you on a roller coaster and take you on a ride. So it's all slamming and going around corners. Yeah. Constant action, constant, you know. There's something missing, I feel like, even with something like Creature that's got that da-da-da over the top. It still has those, those dips and those moments where you can just enjoy that they're in the Amazon. Yeah. And it reflects what's going on on the inside of the, the character, the actor. Yes. If what's going on inside is not this overt Mickey Mousing of the action, you know, it's uh, what's going on. Well, that's that's the term they use is Mickey Mousing, uh, like a Scott Bradley cartoon score for uh, Tom and Jerry. You there know, you everything. and it kind of follows the action exactly. <laughs> and that, yeah, that's uh, called Mickey Mousing from the old, uh, the old Disney stuff. Yeah. Are there any contemporary composers now that, I mean, I guess we mentioned the person that works with Del Toro, whose name I cannot pronounce, but are there any other contemporary composers working today that you really kind of respond to? Mark Corvin. Okay. He did the score for The Witch, oh. uh, which I was fortunate to see in an empty theater. Oh. And man, and now it's dissonant. It's creepy and dissonant, but there's something, something good going on with Mark Corvin. Also, uh, Bear McCreary is mm. one to listen for. I was just talking about Bill McCreary with somebody the other day. He did a lot of television. Um, Black Sails. That's Bear McCreary. That's really some great stuff. You know, guys like that, they listen 
they use themes and then you can build all kinds of stuff out of that and it's not a slam bang adventure ride it's almost a psychological uh, internal uh, process thing going on it's really great so when you say they build themes i mean i, I kind of know what you mean because again i'm not a musician what, what do you mean by that uh making a melody okay it's got it's just if you're in the shower and you're improvising singing that's a melody you know and the, the trick is to remember it and write it down if, if you're trying to come up with something and then you have this arc you have this line of notes and it's a shape it's called the melodic curve what you can do is you can play with it you can play it backwards or upside down or both and you can harmonize it in different ways and you can slow it down you can speed it up you can do all kinds of things with the theme and all of that material that you generate is related to one thing. And that's that melody. It helps the movie hang together. But it's not just movies. It's also, you know, classical writing or orchestral writing or even concert band writing. The good stuff has a basic sonic idea, which you take and it's finite. It has a beginning, middle and end. And then you play with it. And if you get a good one, it can generate all kinds of material. Okay. And how you generate material from that, that's music school stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that's when you hire Reber. That's what you do. <laughs> that's right. Call me. <laughs> well, I, I'm eager to tell you what one of my absolute favorite, probably within the number one or two slot uh, film scores are from classic horror. But there's something that we do here on the show that we haven't done yet. And I think I did do it with you in person at the Lovecraft Film Festival years ago. We have a game here that we play called the Classic Five. I've got a deck of cards here, and each one of these cards has a this or that, what movie do you like better style question. Okay. And uh, I like to play it with every person that comes onto the show. There are no wrong answers. I call it a game, but really, it's a conversation starter. Okay. Ready to play the Classic Five? Sure. All right, card number one. Who do you prefer, Christopher Lee or Bela Lugosi? That's a terrible question. You really can't compare them. Um, growing up, I think I preferred Bela Lugosi. Okay. Christopher Lee grew on me. Maybe it's just because what they were running on TV where I grew up at the time. You know? Okay. What about you? <laughs> or am I allowed to ask the question? Oh, no, you're, you're allowed to ask. Um, uh, I love Christopher Lee. I, I do, too. Fantastic. And him and Cushing committed to that character, even though those movies were low budget mm-hmm. and they were like throwaway movies for the studios or whatever. They were so serious and focused on their characters. It was performances, just a very serious performance. And sometimes now you get the wink, you know, you know, we're trying to be serious, but but we're mm-hmm. really not serious because we're all in on it, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> not those guys. They were there. They were completely in that character. And I think we miss a little bit of that. I mean, even if it was a movie that he hated doing, like some of the Dracula films later in his career yeah. at Hammer, Lee was committed. He yeah. was good. I think it's a so, work ethic thing. I yeah. think it's a... Uh, okay, I took this job, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it straight. I mean, I love Lee, but if I were to answer the question on the card, I'd have to go with Bela, because I'm a Bela guy through and through, so. Okay. <laughs> love my Bela. All right, card number two. In your opinion, who else could have or should have played Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Wow. Well, it'd be fun to see Christopher Walken do it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that'd be a weird one. Might be fun to see Robert De Niro do it. That would be a really weird one. Ooh. Well, he did a Frankenstein. He did do a Frankenstein with limited success, in my opinion. Yeah. But okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm trying to think of, like, people you wouldn't normally think of. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, actors that are really into it. Hugh Jackman. Ooh. Good. 
Huh. I don't know. His would be very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because I think he could get really dark. Yeah, so I like that. The House of the Gorgon featured Martin Beswick. Yeah. Was, uh, was Sister Hyde. Sister Hyde, right? That's right. right. Yeah. So I wonder what uh, females, you know, would do a, oh. a good job as uh, in the remake of that movie. I'd like to see Diane Weist do it. Oh, yeah. I always think of her as this sweet little old lady, and I'd love to see a dark side of Diane Weist. <laughs> You know, I'm, I I don't know why my brain's going here, but Charlize Theron did that movie Monster, and I wonder if that would be like, ooh. She was great. Uh, yeah, I, I think I want to see her as a Dr. Jekyll sister Hyde. I like that. Yeah. It's fun to think about. Yeah. All right. Card number three. What do you prefer, the Twilight Zone or the Outer Limits? Oh, God. <laughs> Terrible question. I like them both. <laughs> uh, they don't run Outer Limits often enough here. Uh, but they're running Twilight Zone all the time, and it's on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people remember Outer Limits episodes as being Twilight Zone episodes, to be honest. I think so, too. The theme, well, Jerry Goldsmith got to start over there with Twilight Zone. Bernard Herrmann worked there. A lot of great composers. I'm not so sure about Outer Limits. The theme from the Outer Limits always blows me away. The Twilight Zone theme is iconic and all that, and it's it's really great. But the there's something more cosmic, I think, about the uh, Outer Limits theme. And that would make sense, I think, given the subject matter, typically. Yeah. yeah. So is this your way of not answering the question, then, between <laughs> Twilight Zone and Outer Limits? <laughs> I guess I'd have to go with Twilight Zone. Okay, okay. <laughs> God. I don't want to, but I, I guess I have to. All right. Well, here, here's our fourth card, our fourth question. Both of these films were directed by Ray Kellogg. Which one do you prefer? The giant Gila monster or the killer shrews? I've seen both. Okay. I don't care about either. Uh-oh. <laughs> I was really into uh, the lizard fights in like uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth and all that other stuff when it first came out. And so the Gila monster I watched because I was fascinated with uh, using uh, lizards as monsters. Sure. Um, I wanted to get an iguana. My mom wouldn't let me have an iguana. She said, you know, they'd be sitting on the curtains or something and scare people. But... What was the question? <laughs> I got into lizard land and just kind of went off. Giant Gila monster or the killer shrews? Eh, I'd go with the giant Gila monster. This engine's still warm. Say, did you see the skid marks out here? They go at a direct right angle to the direction of travel. No digs in the macadam either. Somebody was hurt. There's blood all over this thing. What is this black menace that kills everything it sees and hears? No human mind could imagine the enormous destructive power of this maddened, killing thing. If you're young people in love, look out. If you're driving a lonely road, you're as good as dead. There's been a lot of livestock missing lately. That doesn't make headlines, but now it's people. Never in the history of the United States, a monster of such size and power and horrifying hatred of man. All right, final card, final question. Okay. Which scientist do you prefer? Dr. Septimus Pretorius from Bride of Frankenstein or Gustav Niemann from House of Frankenstein? I got to go with Dr. Pretorius. 
that guy was just fantastic. <laughs> Everybody does. <laughs> That's the kind of guy we need working today. You don't see these guys. You don't see them. We've got this kind of generic idea of what actors are. Mm-hmm. And you just don't see these guys. I mean, that guy had a severe angular face and he could play an entire range of things. <laughs> <laughs> I love Dr. Pretorius. He is yeah. just, I was so excited when, okay, maybe I shouldn't have been, but I was excited when they were going to do the dark universe thing and they were bringing back the monster movies and all that, the monster shared universe, the sizzle reel they put out that had a decent score by Danny Elfman behind it. Had a clip of, well, had clips of all the different horror movies that Universal had done. And it ended with Dr. Pretorius, you know, saying, welcome to a new world of gods and monsters. And I got really excited because I thought, well, maybe that means they're going to bring back that character and do something with him. Right. Now the Dark Universe thing has kind of fallen apart. So yeah. no way that's ever going to happen again, which, you know, for better or worse, it happened. But Dr. Pretorius, as I feel like, is a character that was so underused. I could so see him in other things. I'd love that to follow that guy's adventures. Maybe before he... A backstory. Yeah. Yeah, that would be great, how he developed his uh, his outlook and, and, and experiment. And, and the and the human oculi, the, the little guys in the jars. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, that shares the thing with the uh, Golden Voyage of Sinbad, the homunculus. You know, it's mm-hmm. an alchemical thing, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. The thing about the dark universe and all that failing, that's fine. Uh, They weren't doing a good job, but they were trying it. And that's good. I hope people keep trying because once one of them hits, it's going to take off. Well, Bluehouse is supposedly involved in the Invisible Man now, from what I understand. So we'll see what happens. So I said I wanted to tell you what one of my absolute favorite scores is. It's from a Hammer film. Okay. But it's not James Bernard, as much as I love James Bernard. And he's on my list, too. This guy, he only did one film for Hammer. Okay. The Mummy, 1959 score for The Mummy by Franz Reisenstein. Oh, I didn't know who it was by, but I remember the music. Yeah, it's really good. I don't know if it's still on any releases of it now, but I have a CD of it. And the first track is Chris Frilly talking over the score, telling everybody, this is the best music you'll ever hear for a Hammer film. Wow. (laughs) And if Chris Frilly tells you something, you believe it. Yeah, I believe it. I (laughs) I would believe that. He only did a handful of film scores. He was more, uh, you know, doing operas and things like that. Oh, yeah. So, you know, and he definitely brings that kind of theat. well, obviously it's all theatrical, but this very theatrical vibe to what he's doing. And I just adore this soundtrack and can listen to it over and over and over again. Wow. Fantastic. Well, operas are pretty much movies. You know, they're just acted out. They're live. Mm-hmm. The other horror film that he did was Circus of Horrors. But Circus of Horrors is good, too. But no, I absolutely adore the score for The Mummy. And uh, that's pretty much right up there on the top of my list, along with like Creature from the Black Lagoon, which is a completely different kind of film. Right. But it's the score that you're, you're talking about. Uh, they just re-released John Williams' Dracula on a collector's disc. He, he does okay. I like it. It works. And, you know, the theme, dum, but, um, you know, it's really effective. I put it on the holiday gift guide uh, oh, yeah. this past year because it's just a phenomenal CD. And, it is. And, and from what I understand, John Williams wasn't too keen on, you know, it's like he called it a, a ketchup and thunder right. movie that he was doing. Right. But you wouldn't know it by listening to it. I mean, he put all his all into it. And again, it's fantastic. Again, he's one of those guys. It's, it's a work ethic thing. 
okay, I've got this job. I've signed on to it. I'm going to do it as straight as I can do it. Serious, you know. It's a phenomenal score. And like I said, listeners, it was on the holiday gift guide this past year for a reason. Two disc set. And I think it was a limited edition thing, too. So if you don't have it yet, you got to get it before it goes out of print. Yeah. So what's your third top score? Oh, let's see. I had Creature, I had Mummy. Uh, I did have Rodan, you know, the kaiju films on there. But as we're talking here, I started thinking about another score that I really like. And it's a little more off the beaten path in terms of being able to get it on CD. There was a film in 1965 called The Skull. Oh, yeah. Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. I know the movie. Elizabeth Lutyens, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right or not. It's L-U-T-Y-E-N-S. She did a few things for Hammer, like Never Take Sweets from a Stranger and Paranoiac, but she did The Skull, and that movie is just a great film anyway. But the score also has some dreamlike moments, uh, some flat-out spooky gothic stuff, but it's not over the top. It's just, it's a beautiful piece of music, and you can find it on CD in... uh, a release that has bits of music from four of her film scores. Uh, I don't remember the name of it, but I'll, I'll make sure I mention it in the show notes of this episode so people can track it down if they're interested. Yeah, I just wrote it down to be sure and listen to it. The original Frankenstein and Dracula scores, the old Universal scores where they mixed recordings of classical music, and that's always fascinating to me. You know, I mean, we're early, so early in film production history that they haven't really figured out the film score thing yet, I guess. <laughs> I don't yeah. know how I look at it. And they use Swan Lake. Dracula and their version of The Mummy. Whenever I think of Dracula, I always think of that. Yeah. Yeah. And Frankenstein, it's got the chase music and things. Yeah, it's mostly classical stuff that I'm sure they probably had sitting around in their library from something. And Yeah. You know, just, just threw it in there. Now, Bride of Frankenstein had a fully realized original score. But yeah, with the earlier films, especially in Dracula, there's hardly any music in it at all. Which is fine. Yeah? Yeah. Let's get rid of some music. I'm, I'm serious. The silences can be really great. <laughs> there's just too much. Um, yeah, I just saw Bride of Frankenstein at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Oh, wow. Projected the film, and then the orchestra does the soundtrack. Man, it was fantastic. It was great. And they do that. They did Psycho and some other things like that. And just it's just fantastic to hear a world-class orchestra on stage. Richard Kaufman is conducting usually. I think Vertigo is supposed to come out if it's not already out. Uh, I was going to say Vertigo is one of my favorite Hitchcock scores. Yeah, so. mine too. Pride of Frankenstein, Franz Waxman yeah. did that. And I mean, he, he's not really associated normally with the classic universal monster cycle, but his Bride of Frankenstein work is top notch. Well, man, yeah. I've had a blast just talking about film scores with you. Me too. Definitely think people need to check out House of the Gorgon when it comes out, uh, which will be coming out today. Yes, that's right. Reberclark.bandcamp.com or reberclark.com. There will be links in the show notes. Do you have a preference as to what track we play on the show? No. It can be whatever you like, sir. All right. Well, give me an excuse to listen to it. Uh, the music that I have here from when I was working on the movie and decide which one I like best. Great. <laughs> Sounds good. I am so happy you asked me to do this. It was a blast. We'll have you back on down the line. We'll find a, a classic monster movie to talk about and, and chat it up. In the meantime, I'll see you in June, sir. All right. Onward to Monster Bash. Huge thanks to Reber for making the time to do this with me this week. This was rather short notice, but since the album is now on sale as of today, I thought it would be great to get him on the show to talk a little bit about, well, 
all things horror movie music. House of the Gorgon, coming soon. The soundtrack you can buy now over at reberclark.bandcamp.com or just go to his website, reberclark.com. And to whet your appetite, we're going to be playing a track from the album. We'll be playing the track Anna's Dream. It's the ninth track on the 12-track CD that is available now. Check it out. And Reber, thanks again for being part of the show this week, and we'll have you back on down the line to talk about something else. I'm sure we can find something to talk about. years ago, a land of strange rituals and savage cruelty. Many of their secrets are still hidden from the eyes of 20th century man, secrets that protect their dead. Supernatural powers that once released can live again in our modern world. The mummy, the living dead, 
bringing terror and death across 4,000 years. He was a high priest of the great god Karnak until one night he attempted the ultimate in blasphemy. He was condemned to guard forever the princess he had loved and protect her from intruders. destroy those who desecrated the tomb of our princess. He who robs the graves of Egypt dies. He who robs the graves of Egypt dies. After shock. After shock. After shock. Warning. After shock. The sexual transformation of a man into a woman will actually take place before your very eyes in Dr. Jekyll. And Sister Hyde. A man by day. A woman by night. The perfect disguise to indulge your lust for sex and violence. Dr. Jekyll. And Sister Hyde. An American International Pictures release in color rated PG. Was he a woman? Was she a man? Or, or were they it? both? C-3PO, Loki, Mace Windu, Dr. Bruce Banner, Captain Rex, Venom, Princess Leia, Jean Grey, Darth Maul, Nick Fury, Grand Moff Tarkin, Captain America, Lando Calrissian, Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, Imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana Podcast on iTunes. Because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. Fozzie Bear. Buzz Lightyear. Link Hogthrob. Doug. Janice. Merida. Pepe. Bruce. Ralph the Dog. Wally. Dr. The Disney Bunsen Indiana Hindu, Podcast. Syndrome, Even after five years, we're well, still miles away from the nearest the Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. 
Radio presents Dr. Tongue's World of Monster Collectibles. Spanning the globe looking for monster goo so you don't have to. Dateline New York City. The annual New York City Toy Fair was just held February 15th through 19th, where else but in New York City. The yearly event is the trade show for the toy industry and is where toy companies, large and small, debut their new lines for the upcoming year. There was a lot of Monster Kid news out of Toy Fair this year, led by the company that holds the Universal Monster Master License Super 7. Items shown again this year from the previous year, but in more finished form, were the two new Super Buckets of the Wolfman and the Mummy to accompany the already released Creature and Frankenstein Monster Buckets. Also shown were the painted-up prototypes for the Universal Monster Super Sokies. Shown were the Mummy, Invisible Man, the Monster Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Wolfman, the Metalunum Mutant, and Creature from the Black Lagoon. Not shown was the Dracula from that line. Also showing from Super 7 will be drinking glasses, an assortment of t-shirts, as well as a new reaction figure line featuring Dracula, the Bride, the Monster, the Invisible Man, Phantom of the Opera, and for the first time anywhere, the creature as seen in Revenge of the Creature, featuring a new head sculpt and chains on his wrists and ankles. These are set for summer release. A surprise item debuting at Toy Fair was an assortment of small rubber figures of the monsters. Known as Keshi in Japan, these are small 2-3 to three inch rubber figures that will be blind boxed and feature 6 different monsters in 4 different colors. The first assortment is due out in the first quarter of the year, with a second assortment to follow towards the end of the year. In other Toy Fair news of interest to Monster Kid radio listeners, NECA unveiled a great lineup of 8-inch articulated figures featuring characters from the Halloween movie series, including three figures of the Kitty trick-or-treaters wearing Don Post masks used in the film Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Also shown were two different versions of Pennywise Incarnation from Stephen King's It. Dateline Berwyn, Illinois! If you're familiar with the horror host Sven Gulli, and you watch him every week on MeTV, like I do, you are probably aware that he has had a couple of action figures of himself available in the Sven Gulli store. Uh, wait, he, he has a store? Uh, anyway, the first two versions of the 8-inch figure have sold out, with the third just announced for sale. In a bit of one hell of a coincidence, the new figure of Sven, dressed in his signature tux and top hat, is being sold in a four-pack with three of the remade Mego Mad Monster figures I talked about last time. Dreadful Drac, the Horrible Mummy, and the Monster Frankenstein are clamshelled all together. These are produced by the figure's toy company and retails for $100. Artist Spotlight! In the Monster Artist Spotlight this time, I'm going to expose you all to a company called Lunar Crypt. Operating out of Ohio, Lunar Crypt is a one-man show that makes great enamel pins and t-shirts that's sure to get your inner monster kids salivating. I own several of their pins based on graphics from old monster toys from our past, such as the Ideal Haunted House game, and one of Gregory the Blood Pumping Bat. And if you're into retro monster tees, why not check out the classic Zachary or the werewolf shirt that they've made? I can proudly say I own both. They are on Instagram at Lunar Crypt Co. or through their website of the same name. Just add the .com, LunarCryptCo.com. Check it out. Spotlight on Vintage Monster Toys! 
The news of the new reaction figure assortment from Super 7 had me waxing nostalgic for the original line of 3 and 3 quarter inch monster figures made by Remco Toy Company way back in 1980. Remco obtained a universal license in the late 70s and produced, in my humble opinion, some of the best universal monster figures ever seen in the toy world. These are true reproductions of the monsters, but done in the 3 and 3 quarter inch style that was popular at that time due to companies like Mego and Kenner's Star Wars line. The assortment consists of Dracula, the Frankenstein's monster, Wolfman, Phantom of the Opera, the 1925 version, the mummy, and creature of the Black Lagoon. Aside from the outstanding sculpts on the minifigures, the card art was done very tastefully and traditionally with a nice black and white screen pick of the original monster with really nice pumpkin orange lettering in the lower corner of the cards. The picks were of the actual movie monsters, so Karloff's monster and mummy, Cheney Sr.'s Phantom, Cheney Jr.'s Wolfman. The notable exception is the inclusion of two very small pronounced fangs on the Lugosi Dracula image. Was this an early licensing coming into play? Who knows? The initial assortment of monsters came out to much success, enough to warrant a second run of figures, but this time with a little added bonus, glow-in-the-dark paint. The second and then third line of the monsters kept the same six monsters, but added the gimmick of the glow-in-the-dark paint to the hands and the face of four of the monsters, and total glow-in-the-dark molded bodies for the mummy and the creature. Also released from Remco was a vinyl carrying case playset, and in today's collectible market, a very rare and difficult to find in good shape monsterizer set. This was essentially a compact Dr. Frankenstein's lab to give your monsters a little electrical boost. Time restricts me from going into the Remco 9-inch Universal Monster line that was released at the same time, so we'll leave that for another time. Until next time, this is Mark Dr. Tongue Peterson saying, Happy Monster Collecting, everybody. I'm out! Peace! That's a superstition. Now, there you are wrong. The power of darkness is more than just a superstition. It is a living force which can be tapped at any given moment of the night. Why? On one night of one year, should these people live in mortal fear? who knows he must fight the devil's power to the death. My God. Don't look at the eyes, Rex! Eyes, eyes, once filled with love, are consumed with fear. For Tanith is now promised to the devil. Listen carefully to what I say. This is Makata, the devil's chief disciple. Your will is leaving you, slipping away. Go! Go!
A Devil's Bride, from bestseller author Dennis Wheatley's The Devil Rides Out, fills the screen with a special kind of visual terror. On your feet quickly! Back to back! Join hands! You will hear his evil. You will feel his evil. You will see his evil. We once catch sight of his face. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster vs. monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. circling around, uh, mysterious happenings at night, uh, strange noises emanating from the dark. Leave Karlstadt. Leave now and never come back. Stay away from them. They mean you great harm. Starring Caroline Monroe as the Baroness. What was the sinister secret she hid beneath her dark spectacles? Martine Beswick as her sister Uriel, malevolent and evil. You would sacrifice all that we've done merely to quench your innate desire for violence. Oh, what if I did? Veronica Carlson as Anna, the one woman in the village of Karlstadt willing to stand against these angels of death. I could fight you. We can fight you! Christopher Neem as Llewellyn, a man of faith, locked in mortal combat with overwhelming evil. If we leave them alone, maybe they'll leave us alone. Also starring Joshua Kennedy as the mysterious Dr. Pritchard. And introducing Georgina Dugdale, Gooey Film's latest star discovery, the Gorgon's most beautiful victim. See all of this and more when you visit the House 
of the Gorgon. Cast you out! Every unclean spirit, every satanic power, in the name and by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ! afternoon uh kind of going old school here because i don't have my big handheld mic just gonna pass the recorder around uh i am hanging out at a starbucks just down the street from the hollywood theater post lovecraft which just feels weird um to to be down here i was telling dominique earlier that uh, it just feels weird to be in the hollywood after lovecraft because it feels so well just quiet and small it's just bizarre anyway the reason i'm here is because we just got done with the screening with a movie that i had never seen before today and Chris McMillan and Dominique Lamsey's were here for my first time. How are you guys doing? I'm going to start with Dominique. She's closer. Well, aren't you guys doing what, you, what we want? Hi, everybody. Oh. oh, I'm sorry. Hi, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm going to tell people what we watched. We just saw Night of the Demon. Actually, Night of the Demon, not Curse of the Demon, which is a movie that I had never seen before, which... Yeah, I probably should have, considering I like the director whose last name I'm going to mispronounce just because I don't know where to put the accent. Jacques Turner. Turner. Jackie T directed this movie. And uh, <laughs> yeah, right now, it is great. <laughs> it is great, yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought it was really good, um, but we'll talk a little bit more about it. But th- this is a movie that the two of you had already seen uh, a few times, and, and we were talking a little bit about that while we were finishing our coffee. Uh, how many times would you say you've seen it, Chris? Uh, at least three. Yeah. And I've seen both Night and Curse before this. Um, I think I saw Night of the Demon on TV and then I got a Blu-ray with both of them. Or a DVD, I'm sorry, with both of them on it. And so I saw that once. And there was another time I don't remember. But this was my first time on the big screen. And it's so good. What about you? I want to say four or five. Um, it's one of those... I- movies i watch every year this time of year because it's always on somewhere yeah i think i've only ever seen night of the demon i don't think i've seen curse now that i think about it because the version we saw which was night of the demon that's just like okay that's what the movie is i don't remember any of it being cut or thinking hey i don't remember that so i think i've always seen the european cut So the difference, as it was explained to us uh, before, and I guess I kind of knew this, Curse of the Demon is what it was called when it was released here in the States with about, what do you say, about 15 minutes cut. Night is what it was released over in the UK because in the UK, I don't know, they just like their British thrillers, but well, I don't know what I'm going with that. But I'm glad we saw this. And it was kind of kind of neat because they were saying that they weren't sure which version of the film they were going to get until the print actually showed up. So... You know, we lucked out. Bonus, we got to see Night of the Demon. Although I'd be curious to watch Curse just to kind of see what the difference is. Do you know what the differences are? Did you recognize anything? Well, I do know that the scene at the party is shortened quite a bit. Basically, what they did is they took away a lot of the talking. Because, hey, let's just get to the scary stuff. But it's not a whole lot. But I think sacrificing some of the moments at the party is really not a good idea because there's so much character development going on with uh with with oh god i forget his name the bat carswell that (laughs) wow you just don't want to miss any moments with him on the screen because he is the actor just plays him so well every time he turned up i would lean over to dominic and say i just love that guy (laughs) British people are great that's one of the reasons I love this movie so much all British people just the way they talk and they're so flippant about everything and well 
not only that, he's such... He's not a classic bad guy. He's not the person twirling his mustache going, blah, ha, 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 ha. Uh, he's just this charming guy who puts on magic shows for kids and summons demons. You know? Just, just, just what he does. Yeah, I keep looking at this guy and then drawing parallels to Charles Gray in The Devil Rides Out. Man, they're just kind of suave and cool, and I could see how they would have followers built around them, you know? No, for me, it's Tom Conway and The Seventh Victim, because this was about the same time as The Seventh Victim. Which makes a lot of sense, considering the Val Luton connection. Did Jacques do Seventh Victim? I don't remember. I don't think so. I don't know. Somebody's going to pull out a phone and, and double check, but uh, it might have been Robert Wise, too, because I know after Jackie T moved on, Robert Wise came in. Bobby W. came in. Stop calling him that. That is really bugging me. Jacques Turneau. Jacques Turneau. <laughs> when my boy Jacques um, moved on from Luton and started getting other jobs, Robert Wise came in and started doing a few films with him as well. And I, I, I don't remember where this was. This came out in the 50s, though, didn't it? Or 40s. 40s, I think. I was thinking early 50s, but I reserve the right to be wrong on that one. Oh, well, we got a a person on a phone looking it all up. Dominique's on the bat phone checking. Um, (laughs) Literally, she's got a Batman phone case. I really enjoyed everybody in here. Okay, 57. All right. Oh. Which I could see. I mean, there there is a a 57, a, a, a 50s vibe in terms of the acting from the person who played the American. I don't know much about Dana Andrews, but he did come across as American if he is great, if he wasn't great acting. But he did have that kind of 50s American swagger a little bit. Yeah. Especially when he's uh, <laughs> hitting on his buddy's daughter, or, or niece, excuse me. That was awesome. Oh, Mark Robson directed Seventh Victim. Okay. Okay. Seven Victim is good, too, though. I can definitely see connections there. There are a bunch of other Val Luton-isms in this movie, specifically what's called the, or known as the Luton bus, which um, comes from the cat people, where we have a scene where a bus just kind of out of nowhere comes barreling through, and it's a jump scare, but it's an effective jump scare. That happened a couple times in here, and both times it got me. I I leaned over and swore every time that happened. Um, did, Did the bus get you at all? No. Nope, sorry. Whatever. It got me. So at the very end, it got me. But the other one that got me, of all things, to make me jump just a little bit, it's a tree branch. Just a freaking tree branch. Yeah, that one. Nope. But realize, we've seen the movie. And there's a big difference between watching a movie on your TV where you can control the lighting and being in an absolutely pitch dark big theater and these things projected on, you know, a giant screen. it makes those jump scares much more effective the first time you see them. Well, it got me, I'm sure, and uh, it may get me again next time I watch it. The Cat People one gets me, too, even though I've seen that repeatedly. But, yeah, it got me. What Was the movie scary overall? Yeah, I think it had some really good scare moments. I see a lot of parallels between this and then another movie that I really like that involves an American character going to the U.K. and getting involved in some supernatural stuff, and he doesn't quite believe at the very beginning, Wolfman. I see a little bit of Wolfman, Lon Chaney, in Dana Andrews' character. Um, I don't know if I'm the only one. Uh, both both Chris and Dominique had a puzzled look on their face. Uh, yeah. 
Um, no, I, 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 I missed the parallel, but that's because Dana Andrews' character is coming specifically True. to the UK to debunk all this. Um, and then finds out, well, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have tried that. I guess maybe when I looked at like the profile of Dana Andrews, I, I saw maybe a little bit of younger Lon Chaney when he was trying to be the suave, romantic lead. What are your thoughts on Dana? Dana Andrews. D- D- Dana A. <laughs> I can't, I can't. Danny, never mind. <laughs> I'll let this one slide. Um, I don't know. I don't... See, the thing is, what I kind of like about this movie is that the supernatural stuff is not a foregone conclusion. I mean, spoiler alert, ultimately it is there. But it's treated in such a like mundane, usual way that it's not the the supernatural stuff isn't really surprising it's more of like a lovecraftian thing of this has really been here the whole time and you didn't notice it whereas in wolfman the supernatural stuff is like ooh, it's here and it's everywhere (laughs) and it's all around you and that's what this movie is about (laughs) all right all right i know this is an audio podcast but i wish i had my camera that would have been awesome that would have been awesome the the motions that the dominique was just going through here would make like the perfect gift you know like when you're having a conversation in in facebook and you're looking for like spooky gift just waving her fingers around sorry not to derail your train of thought there that's okay because yeah the train of thought is gone now i can't remember what i was saying I did pick up on a bunch of Lovecraft stuff, too. Oh, yeah. And if this movie hasn't been shown at the Lovecraft Film Festival, man, it really could or should, because there's a lot there. And I also, to comment on something you said, even though it's not a foregone conclusion, it's if it does happen, it's like, uh, it, it happens, because that's what happens here. There, there's a lot of commentary in there, or, or not commentary, a few lines of dialogue where somebody's like, you know, we might shine the bright light of science on something, but the brightest lights cast these deep shadows. I'm like, oh, well. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good. Oh, Dominique wants to speak. She's waving her hand. Because <laughs> <laughs> I remember what I was going to say. Um, because I think it's, it's, it reminds me of sort of the Japanese stuff, but also I think it's, again, kind of British, that you have this very old culture where they just kind of take these things for granted, that this is a thing that happens, and it's here, and we deal with it. So it's not a big deal if I host a little kid party and my mom makes ice cream, and then I go into the library and threaten to feed this guy to a demon, because wah, wah, that's how it happens. <laughs> well, well and, and there's, there's you know... <laughs> wah, wah. Wah, wah. Um, there's a few. There's a few of the other actors, you know, the scientists who are working with Dana Andrews' character. Um, one's from England, and the other one's from India, and they're both like, "Oh yeah, we believe in this stuff." You know, um, the one from England is the one talking, or was it the other? One of those was the ones who uh, was the one who talked about, you know, the brightest light casting the darkest shadow. So there is a. No, I thought it was one of the scientists. Was it the girl? Was it? No, no, no. It was the Irish guy. It was the Irish guy. You're right. Yes, yes. Um, so, you know, was he from Ireland? I'm pretty sure that was an Irish accent. Yeah, it could be. Anyway, he anyway. Would, anyway <laughs> um, he's from across the pond, and there's a lot of, of talk about that. How, you know, hey, just because we're scientists doesn't mean we know everything. The last line in the movie, maybe it's better if we don't know. Um, because, yeah. It's out there. Very Lovecraftian line at the end. And yeah, I agree. There's a lot of Lovecraftian styling in that. Well, that last line, too, just kind of puts a cap on the whole arc of the character. It wasn't just we're ending the movie on this. I mean, he, this character spends the entire time to uh, an absurd point, I feel like, not believing any of this stuff. 
despite all the stuff that's happening around him, the, the big storm that happens at the kids' party and all that, doesn't react at doesn't think that's spooky at all. He'll acknowledge it as having any kind of supernatural whatever to it, but at the end he finally does kind of make that leap, and I, I appreciated that too, you yeah. know? I think it's actually very important to that point that the character is American. Because that's an American attitude of we know it all and we can fix it all and we can solve it all. But the British people are like, nah. (laughs) Well, and that's something else that I really like about that clash of cultures here because America, compared to these other world powers that are being represented in this film, a very young country. We're we're still, and and even today, I mean, we're still pretty naive about a few things and, and we think we've got it all figured out. But really, we're just kind of like the teenager you know we're we're the petulant teen and and europe's you know they've got it figured out well and also they're you know other countries are more steeped in this sort of lore than we are you know they've had centuries to develop supernatural elements within the countryside or whatever you know they they've, they've got more lore to go on than we do i mean we're starting to get there we got bigfoot um, you know, but but even Bigfoot isn't uniquely us because there's all the other, Yetis you know, that. yeah, but you know, it's a hey, it's a start. We got like Paul Bunyan and that kind of thing, you know, we got we got that, but I don't know, you know, anyway. Uh, the original story this is based on by M.R. James. Have either one of you read it? They're both shaking their head. No, neither have I. <laughs> I don't think I've read any James, but I keep telling myself I'm going to because I know he predates Lovecraft and believe Lovecraft read him um, mm-hmm. and I'm starting to get really into this weird stuff so weird t- capital W weird stuff so should probably read some more of him the biggest bone of contention about this film with Mr. Tornor <laughs> was the demon from what I understand whether or not the demon itself should appear on screen I have mixed feelings about it but before we started recording Dominique was saying she's okay with it am I putting words in your mouth or is that right i'm more than okay with it i like it i don't think it is disjointed as a lot of people think it does i mean that's a personal opinion and everything because for me there's an element of stop motion to it and it looks like something that came out of the film equinox if you guys have seen that oh yeah yeah Yeah. and for me it's just i don't know it it just worked i like it i like that the face was animated and i mean i can see how some people wouldn't like it but i think it's fine i like it well, I thought the face was a was a puppet mask they manipulated. I don't think it was animated. But the nose. There was one point when the nose twitched a bunch. So I don't know. If, I mean, uh, yeah. But that's what I'm saying. They actually animated it. Oh, they didn't oh, just like... Anim- murmur, murmur, yeah, murmur. okay. I see what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. It looked animated. Not- Another time I wish I had my camera. <laughs> <laughs> I have mixed feelings about the demon. I think you had to include it. But I really... And, and I have to say, I mean... When it first comes on in the smoke at a distance, it really looks good. But I think they should have kept it out of the beginning. Because by the time, you know, the movie's coming to an end, Dana Andrews has seen a black cat turn into a cheetah, I think it was. You know, he's been chased by the smoke thing, you know, the smoke cloud. He's We've seen steaming footprints in woods. At that point... You know, I mean, I know they were trying to make it this suspense. Is it real? Is it not? But by that point, it's real. And at that point, let the monster come loose. I love the footprints. I thought that was awesome. I mean, I love it in The Invisible Man when it happens. And I loved it here to see the footprints form and steam. So cool. Um, I don't mind that there's an actual physical demon there. I mean, the especially when he's off in the distance. 
or the very end when he picks up the guy and he's shaking him around. <laughs> that was awesome. It was. It's just the close-up of the face, I feel like, maybe either happened too often or for too long. Dominique was saying that the nose was twitching, and it was kind of moving, but to me it felt like it was a hand puppet, and somebody was just kind of curling back the, the hands a little bit, pulling it back. Like, it wasn't very well articulated. That said, it is a cool-looking monster. Um, I wouldn't mind a mask or an action figure, <laughs> but... I don't know. I, I, I don't know. It's part of the movie. I accept it. So, you know, it is what it is. Um, I love the music. I love the music so much. <laughs> oh, somebody put that out someday, please. I want that music so badly. Um, yeah, just overall, I love the movie. And I was telling these guys I need to pick up that trick about hypnotizing somebody you're traveling with. Because that was amazing. <laughs> I want to use that in something. I want to write that scene and put that in there as like a nod or an homage. I just want to use it on TriMet. (laughs) I mean, you know, wow, you're sitting next to someone who's deciding to talk to you and you don't want them to. Quiet. Thank you. Okay, it's your stop. That was the most relatable scene in the movie. (laughs) I love that scene, too, because the tables have turned here and the American now has accepted what's going on and, and our villain is terrified. And I loved that so much. Uh, this movie was phenomenal. I'm so glad I finally got around to seeing it. Um, then I got to see it with my friends and a bunch of strangers. <laughs> and see it on the big screen. And it was a 35mm print. Now, you've seen it as a Blu-ray. And you said the transfer is pretty good? Yeah, I love the transfer. I actually probably like the transfer more than the 35mm. So. It's the, the way the shadow... And Tornor came out of the Val Luton school, of course, and a lot of Lutonisms really are Tornorisms, and you see that that work with the shadows, the stuff in the forest at the end when he's running away from the, the invisible footprints. Footprints are not invisible, you know, the footprints. <laughs> uh, the way the light's going through the trees and everything, uh, the hallway shots are really, really good. Just solid work overall. You've got it on disc, you said. it. You- uh, DVD, yeah. And I've got, yeah, I'm lucky I got one of the dual side ones where one side's Curse of the Demon and the other side is Night of the Demon. So that's kind of nice because I got to compare and contrast. And yeah, if you get a chance, watch Night of the Demons. There's a lot more discussion about supernatural, the supernatural and we're being, we're being bombed by leaves. It's, it's, what's his name again? Carl, whatever. Coswell. 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 It's Coswell. Coswell. Yeah, that's him. He's he's coming after us. Any edition with more Coswell, you got to watch it because he's just he's just fabulous. Right there in his little beard and everything. Oh, so good. And he was so creepy in that cl- the, the magician makeup. Yeah. And he's looking up at the guy. He's like, oh, hi. Welcome to my party. He just looked creepy. Oh, so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what? I can tell that Dominique and Chris have gone to movies with me quite a bit because they don't even flinch or blink now <laughs> when they see that I've got a recorder with me. In fact, while we were in the theater waiting for the movie to start, Dominique's like, you can put my recorder down over here next to me. It's no problem. I'm like, no, 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 it's all right. <laughs> they don't even flinch. I would be shocked if you didn't bring a recorder. That would be like, um, who are you, pod person, and what have you done with Derek? <laughs> <laughs> I've got the greatest friends. When I go to a movie with somebody, it's pretty much expected that I'm going to have a recorder or a camera of some sort with me, and I'm going to try to record something. 
for a podcast or YouTube video. So big thanks to Chris and Dominique for their incredible patience with this big guy with a recorder who really wanted to chat about Night of the Demon after seeing it for the very first time. Since then, I have watched the Blu-ray that came out last year, and I believe we even put it on the Monster Kid Radio gift guide. It's an incredible package. It's a two-disc set. It's got both Night of the Demon and Curse of the Demon in different aspect ratios, which I thought was pretty interesting as well. It's a great set. I think I do prefer Night of the Demon to Curse of the Demon just because you get a little extra oomph. And, you know, I'm a sucker for good British horror, which this is. Now, normally I play Kenny's Famous Monsters of Film Lens segment before the film. This time around, I wanted to play it after. So, Kenny, take it away, sir. Hello, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. This week's film, Night of the Demon, also known as Curse of the Demon, was featured on the cover of Famous Monsters 38 from April of 1966 with a painting by Vic Prezio, the classic demon from the film. Inside is a five-page article with four pictures. The article starts with this. Supernatural horrors hurled against the man and woman who dared to doubt. Terrifying adventure as a demon from the dark ages is pitted against a man of science in a war of two worlds, the real and the unreal. Medieval black magic versus the 20th century's own brand of anti-witchcraft weaponry. From hell it came, a monster materializing on the screen before your fear-fraught eyes. You will come to scoff and stay to shudder as a modern scientist and a beautiful girl fight, a thing that burns in the night. Skeptical? Don't make up your mind till you see this masterpiece of the macabre. Most terrifying story the screen has ever told. These were some of the bold declarations made about Curse of the Demon when it burst upon the screen in 1958 like a thunderball. If it wasn't absolutely the most terrifying story ever seen on the screen, it was indeed a masterpiece of the macabre. As a matter of editorial policy, this magazine rarely passes judgment on a picture, only presenting the facts. But in this case, the facts added up to such a worthwhile and memorable monster movie that the editor breaks with tradition. It was a sleeper, where no one slept, deserving of the highest praise. It goes on to give a synopsis of the film and ends with this comment. Curse of the Demon, known in England as Night of the Demon, is another triumph well worth seeing any time revived in a movie or on TV. As fate would have it, I found myself talking on the phone with Mr. Tournier a few days before writing this review. He told me he hopes to film Kaleidoscope by Ray Bradbury and War of the Witches, his own idea. He told me that he did not care for introduction of the fire demon into the plot of Curse of the Demon, that he felt it weakened the effect of the picture but I emphatically disagree. This wasn't the only time Curse of the Demon appeared in FM. The first time was in issue two, where this corny story was told, typical of the pun-filled humor of famous monsters. That fire-breeding beast from the devil's domain in Curse of the Demon is the hottest thing around lately. Dana Andrews' son, Dave, is a reader of this magazine, and he told us that while his dad was acting in that picture, he didn't dare get too close to the monster's breath. We bit and asked him, why? And he replied with a burst of maniacal laughter, because it's a cinch he would have got toasted. Garg, he got me. People who crack jokes like that should be invited over to a weenie roast, and they can be the weenie. 
Curse of the Demon was also mentioned briefly in FM 67 in an article about occult movies and again in FM 182 in an article entitled Satan's Slaves. It featured this interesting behind-the-scenes story. In top form, director Tournay built up the picture's pulse-pounding suspense right from the opening frames. Actually, the film would work just as well without the fire demon, and in fact, it was originally conceived and shot without such a creature. But the executive board at Columbia Pictures, as the story goes, looked at the finished product and said, What? No monster? Put in a monster. So the two scenes featuring the demon were shot and inserted in the final print to satisfy the producers. Toward the end of his life, director Tournay had been quoted as saying, I wanted, at the very end of the film, to include only four frames of the monster coming up with Carswell and throwing him down. After I left, the producer put a monster scene in the beginning. It can plainly be seen, when watching Curse of the Demon, that the project was originally conceived without the inclusion of the demon itself. In fact, the original 1958 press release reported the story as ending with Carswell getting run over by a train, not mutilated by the demon. This seems to suggest that the monster was indeed included in the film at the 11th hour, on direct executive orders. Dana Andrews, the star of the picture, once said that the very first draft of the script had Carswell involved in a fatal car crash at the story's conclusion. Nonetheless, Curse of the Demon is one film that should not be missed by anyone who holds an interest in the macabre. It has been written since the beginning of time that evil, supernatural creatures exist in a world of darkness. And it is also said, man can call forth these powers of darkness, the demons of hell. It is the night of the demon. And tonight is the night that Dana Andrews, as a daring scientist, defies the mysterious murderous devil cult in a desperate battle against the demons of hell. Oh, why did you drop the poker? Red hot. But didn't you know? Oh, my boy, you're as pale as death. There was something in here. He has been chosen. I've been chosen for what? What do you mean? Today I found all the pages of my desk calendar torn out after October the 22nd. I know why. He died on the 22nd. John, what's the matter? The same thing happened to my desk calendar after the 28th. The frightened girl. The master of witchcraft. You will die, as I said. At 10 o'clock on the 28th of this month, your time allowed is just three days from now. Skeptical? Don't make up your mind till you see this masterpiece of macabre magic. Because, after all, evil supernatural creatures really do exist. Are you ready? Are you ready to descend?
to the Zen with Pat Boone, James Mason, Arlene Dahl, and Gertrude the Duck, where nothing is like anything you have ever seen. Come along on the most fantastic adventure Jules Verne ever created. Journey to the center of the Earth. A world-famous scientist, greatest living master of the occult, has mysteriously vanished. In his place, a huge and fearsome prehistoric monster suddenly appears. What happened to Dr. Waterman? Only one man, last to see him alive, knows. And now he finds himself in deadly peril. The weird, the unbelievable, the supernatural come alive before your very eyes in Equinox. The invisible barrier between good and evil. Between light and the forces of darkness. What is the secret of the thousand-year-old book? See four teenage boys and girls fight a devil cult for their lives, their sanity, their eternal souls in Equinox. In supernatural color. Equinox. Night falls on the great halls of Frenzywood. Chris and Jerry read this week's comics with a sense of terror and foreboding. Which books will they enjoy and which will unsettle them with an eerie mood striking into their very souls? They work their way through the rare and mysterious tomes to find those worthy of your attention. A knock comes to the door, bringing something strange and otherworldly that no one has ever seen before. It's the, the Professor, Professor Frenzy, Frenzy Show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy Show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy Show. If you like indie comics and also like podcasts, please try the Professor Frenzy Show. Find the show in iTunes search and Facebook. Episodes tweeted out on at Professor Frenzy on Twitter. Thank you. <laughs> If you're on Facebook or Twitter or online in general, I'm sure you've already heard the news. The ballot for the 17th annual Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards has been released. For those of you who don't know the Rondos, they've been fandom's only classic horror awards decided by fans. They've been running since 2002. I myself am fortunate enough to have been awarded a Rondo and I've also been nominated quite a few years as well. And I, I got to tell you, it's a real honor just to be nominated, to be included in the ballot this year. Some of the categories are things like best film, best fantasy or action film. That's been broken out this year. Best TV presentation, best classic DVD or Blu-ray. There's also a separate category for best DVD or Blu-ray box set versus just the DVD and uh, best restoration or upgrade of an existing movie as well. Best DVD extras, and Best Commentaries, two separate categories there as well. Uh, best Package of DVD Extras, which is an interesting choice there. And then Best Independent Films and Small Films and Documentaries and Books and Interviews and Articles and Magazine Covers and just a lot of really quality pieces of Monster Kid content here. But anyway, I wanted to point out the Rondo Awards just because it's something that I believe in. I think it's important to recognize the work that people like, well, everybody on the ballot is doing regarding Monster Kid fandom and scholarship. Please head over to RondoAward.com to read the ballot and see how you can vote. Now, you don't have to vote in every category. That's something that sometimes throws people off. If you look at the ballot, there are over 20 categories. If you want to vote for all 20, great. If you only want to vote for one, 
that's fine too. Voting is real simple. It's all done by email. Just send an email to Dave at taraco at AOL.com. That's T-A-R-A-C-O at AOL.com. Include your name, your email address, and then just list who you want to vote for in which category. For example, if you only want to vote for a magazine cover, just write best cover, and then whoever it is, whether it's friend of the show Daniel Horn, Mark Maddox, or anybody else that's on the ballot there. Or if you want to write in a choice, you can do that as well. There is a write-in category. And speaking of the write-in categories, the final like five or six categories are all strictly write-ins. Okay, You've got Best Writer, Best Artist, Best Fan Artist, Monster Kid of the Year, and the Monster Kid Hall of Fame. Now, you can put anybody you want here for Best Writer of 2018. That also includes just people that are doing reviews. The difference between artist and fan artist is, well, an artist is somebody who's doing professional work versus a fan artist who is doing it more for the love and that sort of thing. They might sell some of their artwork at conventions and that sort of thing, but there's definitely a difference between artist and fan artist. So keep that in mind. And then for the Monster Kid Hall of Fame, there's a great list of people who have already been inducted into the Hall of Fame. So review that so you're not voting for somebody who's already been listed. You can suggest up to six names of people that you think belong in the Monster Kid Hall of Fame. These are people who have helped the fandom grow. And I've made no secret here. I'm really pushing for fellow podcaster Kyle Yount to be inducted into the Monster Kid Hall of Fame. And I'm going to tell you why. I know I've said this before elsewhere, but I'm going to tell you why here. Kyle is wrapping up year 10 of the Kaiju cast. Now, 10 years of podcasting in one particular subgenre, Kaiju films, or as he says, Godzilla and all of his rubber-suited foes, I mean, that's something. And he's not just doing reviews or comments on the kaiju films themselves. Kyle goes out of his way to get interviews with creators of some of the classic films. He's had actors and actresses on his podcast that were involved in various Godzilla or Gamera or even Ultraman productions, which is very cool. He's gone over to Japan to attend different events that are kaiju related or Toho related and covered that on his show. He's also a director. He created an incredible documentary called Hail to the King, 60 Years of Destruction. This came out in 2015, and you can see it for free on YouTube. You know, the heck, I'll make sure that's in the show notes as well, so you can check that out. It's a phenomenal documentary. I've watched it multiple times. I've even bought the soundtrack because I loved it so much. But that's not all. He goes to Japan so often that a lot of times he'll get together with some of his fellow Kaiju cast regular guests or or co-hosts, as well as fans of the show, and go to Japan with them. Now, it's not like an official trip planning service that he does or anything like that. I've had people ask me about that. It's more informal, but he does talk about it on the show and... He's always open to talk to people about what it would be like or what it would take to go to Japan as a fan of all things kaiju. He's a regular presenter at G-Fest, the premier and may even be the only kaiju-centric convention, well, in the world, is that? Well, at least in North America. Anyway, he's a regular presenter there and a regular attendee there. He also presents kaiju films and Godzilla films locally. He was involved in a local Godzilla film screening series here in Portland a few years ago. And he's also presented just films as one-offs when Godzilla was making its theatrical run again, when they brought that back for the anniversary and had a few theaters showed or whatever. He organized a screening with August Rogonian had August come in as well. And the two of them did a presentation about Godzilla, what it meant, why it's important, where it came from, that sort of thing. And that actually means a lot to me because that's 
kind of how I met Kyle is I met him at a screening at the Hollywood where he introduced King Kong versus Godzilla. I've talked about it on the show in the past. Check it out in the archives. I don't even remember what episode it was, but it was a phenomenal experience to see that on the big screen and to be guided to that by somebody who cares. Not about making himself the thing, but making the movie that he's presenting the thing. I know I'm laying it on really thick for Kyle. Yes, he's a friend. Yes, I've been on the Kaiju cast, and I'm going to be on an episode here in the near future as well, talking about the series Ultra Q. But even if that was all out of play, I love the podcast. I love what he does. And even though he's wrapping up the Kaiju cast here after a 10-year run, he's not stopping. He's still working. He's still doing things. And he's been collecting footage for an upcoming, you know, I don't know much about it because he hasn't really talked too much about it. But I know he's going to keep the Kaiju cast branding similar. He's mentioned something called Collect All Monsters on a recent episode of the Kaiju cast. So that is coming as well. And you know what? Get away from the kaiju stuff. Kyle has offered me advice and help with various projects. He's also been involved in other productions of other local podcasts here as well. He's just the man. And I can't think of anybody, at least from the podcasting podosphere, that needs to be in the Monster Kid Hall of Fame. I, I really encourage people, if nothing else, even if you don't vote for any other category, just write Dave at Taraco at AOL.com and say Kyle Yount of the Kaiju cast for the Monster Kid Hall of Fame. Of course, I'm also on the ballot for Best Multimedia. Monster Kid Radio has been nominated again with some amazing websites and podcasts. Give them all a listen. They're all really good. So go check that out. Maybe throw a vote, you know, to, well... Somebody that you're listening to right now. <laughs> so, and I know this segment's gone a little long, but I do want to just wrap up by saying congratulations to Marlene Midnight of the Midnight Mausoleum. She is up for favorite horror host, which is amazing. Marlena has just been knocking it out of the park with all the honors that she's received lately. She's going to be in the Horror Host Hall of Fame this year as well, which I can't think of anybody who has deserved their success more than Marlena. She's been working real hard to make this happen, and her team has been making this happen, and it's just amazing. So congrats to Marlena. Kyle, I'm pulling for you. The Rondos are amazing. RondoAward.com It's a new height in fright. What of animals to do with this? The man's jugular vein was bitten, clean through. Never before such diabolic evil as the skull. I found in the morning that the skull had been removed. But who removed it? Those who use its power. Invisible beings. Spirits from a strange, evil world. The moving skull spreads its shrieking terror ah! everywhere. Ah! 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 Casting its hypnotic trance over all who fall under its hideous shadow. 
into a killer at its evil command. Never before such blood-curdling horror as the skull. screams of vampire death. Now there's a powerful motion picture that rips at your emotions. The Vampire Lovers. It brings you beautiful love and vampire evil, and it'll drive your mind through a thousand terror-filled moments. You'll hear whispers of warm desire become shrieks of chilling death. You'll taste the deadly passion of the Vampire Lovers and become a slave of the damned. You'll discover the sweet embrace and the deadly kiss of blood nymphs who refuse to die. The Vampire Lovers. It's in color, and it had to be rated R. Under 17 must be accompanied by a parent or adult guardian. Don't miss The Vampire Lovers. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I hope you had a good time. I had a good time putting the show together, recording everything, creating the segments with everybody. It was just a blast. I love doing what I do here, and I hope you at least like it, you know, a little bit. Anyway, <laughs> big thanks to everybody who contributed to this week's show. I'm talking about Reaver, Mark Peterson, a.k.a. Dr. Tongue, Chris, Dominique, Kenny, and everybody else who has contributed to making this show a success, whether you are liking posts on Facebook, whether you are retweeting tweets or sharing announcements about the new episode, or giving us an honest review in the iTunes store, anything that you do to help the show out, well, I appreciate it from the bottom of my monster-loving heart. If you have any comments or feedback for this episode of Monster Kid Radio regarding what we talked about today, whether it is about Night of the Demon versus Curse of the Demon, which, which version do you prefer? Are you looking forward to any of the toys Dr. Tongue talked about or do you have any famous monsters of Filmland comments do you have a favorite film score from a classic monster movie that we didn't talk about with reaver give me a call our voicemail line is 503-479-5657 that's 503-479-5mkr or you can send us an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Of course, this is all available on our website over at monsterkidradio.net, where you can get involved with the show there. You can become a patron of the show. If you want to look at any of the previous episodes, check the archives. You can do it right there. And of course, the show notes for every episode are there as well. So you can find links to Reber's website. You can find links to that James Bernard book that Reber mentioned. I'm going to make sure there's a link to that. So you can pick it up from Amazon. And since we're an Amazon affiliate, that really helps us out. I've actually also added that book to my Monster Kid Radio Amazon wish list because it sounds really good. Anyway, <laughs> there's just a lot going on on our website, so please feel free to check that out. I want to tell you about what's coming up next week. I've got another person on the show that I've been wanting to get on for quite some time, and we've been talking about it, you know, for a good couple of years at this point. We have the horror host, Lord Bloodraw, joining us next week, and we're going to talk with him about the 1954 film, The Bowery Boys Meet the Monsters. 
You'll get those hysterical, hilarious horrors when you join those Bowery boys as overnight guests in a mansion of merry maniacs. We just want your heads. Well, oh, well, if you said that in a quick... Our heads! Uncle Anton, the scientific stoop. Would you like a high cut or a low cut, sir? Oh, I'd like a low cut. Uncle Derek, the medical madman. What is it you're trying to say? Help! Cousin Francine, the fluff with the stuff. I mean business. Aunt Amelia, who's no camellia. The butler Grisson, he's gruesome. The family tree, a man-eating honeysuckle. Boy, oh boy, I feel just like a space cadet. This will register his brain potential. <laughs> My friend here has a vacuum-packed head. The Bowery Boys get the heebies, the jeebies, the willies, and the shakes while you get the laughs of the year. Oh, he's Gentlemen, I have a suggestion. 50 50. No, no, no. Routine six, Satch. Despite last summer's Monster Bash having a heavy Bowery Boys theme, I don't know a lot about the Bowery Boys, and I haven't seen all of their films, but this one. This one is especially made for us monster kids, and you're going to find out why when you come back next week to hear Lord Bloodraw and myself talk about the film. It's going to be a good time. Plus, any other fun things that I can cook up between now and then. Speaking of then, until then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song The Unnamed. That belongs to the band Zombie Zen Agogo, a really cool surf band out of Deer Park, New York. Check them out over at zombiezenagogo.bandcamp.com and check out their self-titled album, Five Tracks. You name your price as a digital download. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you, of course. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. Harvey, want anything special for your birthday? Just a decent cup of coffee. You're kidding. I'm serious. Honey, your coffee's undrinkable. It's pretty harsh. Well, so's your coffee.